You are listening to the Global Jewish Voices podcast, part of the Global Voices podcast series, hosted by me, Victor Esses. The Global Voices podcast is a series presented by Global Voices Theatre, where we engage with the writers and translators behind their popular live events, who are based all over the world. In this series, we discuss how identities and personal histories are explored in theatre, as we look at the vastness and complexities of the Jewish experience and the joys and possibilities that exist. Jessica Benhamu is a multilingual writer-director. Having grown up in three different countries as the daughter of a French-Algerian refugee, she is drawn to global, urgent and untold stories. Her credits include an episode of the docu-series Hacker Hunter, the BFI flash short Love is a Hand Grenade, and UK JFF-funded documentary Sade. Welcome to our podcast. It's lovely to have you. Uh, where are you right now? Uh, thank you for having me. I am in London uh, at the moment. I am northwest, um, so a little bit far from you, I guess. Not too far. I wanted to start off by asking you, where, where did you grow up? So I was born in Israel, um, and then I moved to France when I was, I think, about one. Um, maybe not even and then I moved to the UK when I was five and grew up most of my life in Hertfordshire um, but we kind of always behaved like we were going to move again so we kind of got sucked into the British school system um, it took me a really long time to realize that we weren't going to leave again <laughs> um, but yeah so I've, I've been lucky to grow up in a couple of different countries Mm. Um, and have a multilingual household, I guess. Yeah. Which languages were spoken? My parents would speak to each other in Hebrew um, so that we wouldn't understand. Uh, but we, the three older siblings, grew up speaking um, French and English um, to varying different levels of French because we all left France at different ages. And then I've got two much younger siblings and my parents did move back to Israel for a bit. So they are trilingual, but their French is not so good. So it is quite, it's quite bizarre because all the siblings have just slightly different languages. Um, so yeah, so they can't understand that I can't speak Hebrew. <laughs> nice. And what kind of food did you grow up with? So on my dad's side, it's uh, tagines uh, and uh something called chuchika which i believe kind of has a different name beginning of m but it's it's basically the cooked peppers um that's kind of moroccan style that that's what we'd all fight over um and then on my mum's side they've lived in england for quite a long time so it's quite english food but obviously you've got a bit of ashkenazi so there are things like fish balls um lots of chicken soup what kind of music did you grow up with so i feel like my parents would share more maybe israeli artists than it was you know maybe french music or some israeli um artists but i i have to say i don't feel like it would be more that you know they would share jewish artists around the world that are really famous like ones that everyone listens to and just feel like they were claimed as one of ours, you know, like Bob Dylan or something. Like, it was more, you know, that that Amy Winehouse, she's one of ours. So it's not, it wasn't so much that it was, um, I, I don't, I wouldn't know any Algerian artists, actually, music-wise. 
um, not a single one. You come from a background that comes from Algeria and you end up in Israel. Did your family leave in 1962? So, yes. So my, da- my dad's family left in 1962. Um, and like all of the Jews of Algeria, I think there were 140,000 they all went pretty much to France. I think very few went to Israel at that time. They are increasingly moving to Israel. They were technically, they were French citizens. And when Algeria became independent, they weren't able to have Algerian citizenship. You had to be Muslim to have that. So I believe there's something like only 200 Jews now in Algeria. There are a few in Morocco, I think. I looked it up, I think there's about maybe 2,000 in Morocco. But effectively, all the Jews of that region left um, around that time. And do you know how far back they go? My dad's actually done a gene test, so I can actually really answer this question. I'm going to get the technical terminology here because I don't want to get it wrong, but basically the Jews first came to uh, Algeria or North Africa at the time of the first temple. Then there was a huge wave that came in the 16th century uh, from Spain and Portugal after the inquisition and so that's why i guess you know our families always wondered um we always thought we looked quite spanish <laughs> so we weren't really sure which which part which kind of do we were and so my dad did a, a gene test and we discovered that we're predominantly actually the original settlers so my family have really been in North Africa for, you know, thousands um, of years. And, um, but I do have on my dad's maternal side, some Spanish Inquisition Jews. But, but the, the ones who had stayed there for a long time in the 20th century, they were called Mizrahi Jews. Yes. So this is quite interesting because I think because they basically got mixed up in North Africa, all the Jews of North Africa would refer to themselves as being Sephardi. My family would definitely call themselves Sephardi because the cultures got mixed up. Technically, I'm not Sephardi, I guess. Like Because Sephardi, the word comes from uh, Sephardad, which means Spain, right? Which is the Spanish. Yes. So the Oriental Jews, the ones from the Middle East, the ones that were the first settlers, um, they are the Mizrahi. But you, you would say you are not Sephardi, like you think. I mean, culturally, the way that I would introduce myself is Sephardi, but I, just because I think, I think that's how all of um, the Algerian Jews would now introduce themselves, because no one, unless you've done a gene test, and you know, this is something my dad did a couple of years ago, you wouldn't know if you were Sephardi Jews or not. So we basically assumed that we were Sephardi Jews. Um, and culturally, I don't know that they are at least in North Africa, I don't, I don't think there's any difference anymore. Yeah, I find, I find all of this very interesting because uh, it's the same for me. I grew up thinking we're Sephardi, not just thinking, but knowing. And, and I never knew the, the nuances of all of this because obviously beyond Mizrahi Jews, like I've recently had conversations with um, other people from Sephardi communities, uh, one of them uh, is Ruben Shimonov, who runs a Sephardi Federation in New York, but also uh, an incredible group, uh, the Sephardi Mizrahi Queer Network, or Q Network, we call it. And, uh, and it's been very interesting to, to start to find out about other groups like the Bukhari Jews or the Romaniots, or, which were the Greek Jews, or the Kafkazi Jews, which were Mountain Jews, Georgian Jews. Like, that's so 
much richness and, and I just find interesting our history how I guess it's the history of the world but also our, uh, the Jewish history a lot of culture is lost with time that we don't even inherit the information about often I think absolutely I mean I had to do a little bit of uh, digging into my family history before this talk and I think there's such a lack of clarity because even with my dad's generation, uh, they they fled in 1962 and he was four years old at the time. So I've always, for instance, understood that um, the that that part of the family that that they they were refugees but it's not it's not technically true it's kind of maybe spiritually true because they were not able to have Algerian citizenship I cannot go to Algeria because on my passport it says that I'm born in Israel my dad can't go to Algeria he's born there you know there was an ethnic cleansing of Algeria the history around that is actually a little bit more complex because Jews were granted French citizenship in the late 19th century and they embraced it because it was the first time in Algeria that they they were given the same rights as everybody else so they were like yes we are French so culturally if you speak to most of the um the Jews from North Africa that moved to France they feel very strongly French my dad has no interest ever in going back to Algeria and that sort of history and cultural heritage is therefore completely lost. Also, there's the fact that, you know, on my dad's paternal side, my great grandfather lived in capes, uh, which is something that never ceases to amaze me. Um, you know, they were shepherds in the mountains and, and the kind of documentation that you might have is really limited. So, you know, it took a gene test to really understand um, where we've come from. That's interesting. So, so they they are Berber Jews, is that correct? They're proper, yeah. I, I am on that side, proper Berber Jew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is incredible, and that and that would have dated thousands. Yeah, like you said, quite a, hundreds of years. Do you know much about um, how they were integrated in Algerian society? How even before the French. So I did look into this a little bit. So there was a decree called the Crémillon Decree that granted the Jews and not the Muslims citizenship, uh, French citizenship. Um, and this was because there were already Ashkenazi Jews in France. So the belief of the French was that um, the Jews would embrace French culture but not the Muslims. So what happened was that this created huge tensions between uh, the Jews and the Muslims in Algeria. Um, and then during World War II, uh, during Vichy, the Vichy regime, um, this citizenship was revoked. So, um, and, and also before that time, the other thing to say is that um, the European settlers in Algeria they might have been forced to have the same rights as the Jews, but they did not feel that they were the same. So there was like racial tension also between the Pienois um, and, the, um, and the Jews. So there were waves of like anti-Semitic attacks and stuff. And then um, I think it's in 1943, um, the, the Jews were granted again citizenship and then obviously of 1962, it was effectively um, like when it became, when Algeria became independent, 
they were not able to stay. So in my own family history, I know that um, my grandmother was not able to go to school. She's not the most uh, literate and then had to flee with her young children and was not able to take very much with her. And like, you know, like all the Jews, uh, they, they came to France very, very poor. So I know that kind of um, their growing up experience in France was very difficult. So I know that that's part of a whole cultural, like a whole generation that had that very difficult beginning. Like the French came in and, and, and separated as well. They, they had an anti-Islam sentiment as well, right? So they kind of said, okay, yeah. you guys come with us. You, you guys know. Written by Bert Sultana Benishu Abulker, Lakahena, Queen Berber, tells the story of the warrior queen and seer Lakahena, often described as the Jewish Joan of Arc, who led her Berber people on the resistance against the Umayyad Caliphate invasion of North Africa in the 7th century. Jessica will read an extract for us now. Listen and heed these words, Kasila. It's my all-powerful God. It's him who inspires them. All-powerful king, an attack will take place in five years. It will be pitiless, decisive, fearsome. The king of Egypt in the name of Allah's prophet sets in motion an excited, frenzied army. Defend, Ifriqiyya, prepare for battle. Prepare for battle. This time they will want to break your resistance. Listen, Kasila, noble victor of Okba, and don't be surprised by my insistence. Julie rises and points her index finger at an invisible point. Prophetess, tell me, will I still be victorious? Ah, what I see makes me shudder in horror. She veils her face. In a distant fog, I see a vast circus. Surrounded on all sides, an army advances. It's the enemy. The Muslim warriors at the front are the chiefs, the princes, the imams, carrying the long spike, a large scimitar. Unfolding their banner, they dismount. Say more. Against them come the Berbers. They clash in a disordered battle. In the blood of the horses where their bowels swim, the horsemen slide. You are thrown off. But can't you say, finally, if he will defeat me? Victory, look carefully. Look carefully. Which of the two of us will have it? To my eyes, the picture fades into a fog. Amazing. Thank you so much. I was very excited to um, be made aware of this text, which I didn't know much about, uh, written in the 30s. I love the very classical style of it as well, almost Shakespearean, and, and the way it talks about this Berber queen, which was supposedly Jewish, and it's such a, an interesting story. Can you tell me, when did you hear about it first? Uh, what made you want to translate it? So I've heard of Kahena for a, a long time. Um, and to be honest, I've kind of liked the idea that she's an ancestor, probably. Um, you know, it's always been my excuse if someone wrongs me or something and I feel the need to fight. I'm like, you know, you don't, don't, don't get on my wrong side. I have Berber heritage, okay? Like, you know, my ancestors, my ancestors were led by a warrior queen. Um, you know, like that, that's, there's a pride. Um, and when I saw this competition, I think the thing that I was thinking was that I don't know any Algerian literature and I don't know any of the Algerian plays. And yes, I do write, but I'm more interested in a competition like this. Um, to uncover something that, you know, has disappeared. And 
this play has disappeared into obscurity. Um, it took a lot of effort to track it down. And, you know, I almost gave up because I contacted a whole bunch of libraries and it just really wasn't in print. And this woman was very important in Algeria. Um, this is the first published play by women. There are some people saying that she's the first published woman in any kind of writing. Um, and certainly the first Jewish one. And she was, you know, part of the intellectual circle. She was a poet as well, a painter. Um, her family are super famous, not for her writing, but for their resistance during World War II. And she, all of them got given awards except her, um, despite the fact that she was as involved as the rest of them. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, a kind of feminist subtext really to Hannah's story or not even a subtext. For me, this uh, play reminded me a lot of Racine more than Shakespeare in the sense that it's really marching to a conclusion in a way that I feel is very, very Racine. But then the thing that is really different is that it's a woman's perspective. You know, we don't see that of Shakespeare. We don't see that of Racine. And the relationship that she has with her father in this text is, is really interesting to me uh, that it was written in the 1930s. This is you know, father who really respects his daughter's decisions, who respects her this uh, desire to choose her partner in life. Um, you know, she's she's looked to as a leader, and that feels quite subversive. So I was quite determined to find it. Felt like it was important to bring this historical figure to a platform because uh, a bigger platform because no one knows of her about her in the UK. But historically, you know, she is a big deal. She, she's a Joan of Arc. She's a, um, a Boudicca. She, she, she's one of those. Um, and nobody knows who she is. So I wanted to just do my part to bring her to the attention <laughs> of, of, you know, let's start out with the Jewish community and take it from there. So what was, can you tell us a bit about the story of La Cajena? So the real story, uh, I guess, in this play, at least after her father's murder, she basically becomes a leader for her people and defends um, the area, I guess, against uh, the Arab invasion for five years. But, you know, like all great leaders, uh, sometimes their stories must come to an end. And, you know, you should watch the play or read it <laughs> to find out what happens to her. She's a uh, soothsayer. She's very much a Joan of Arc in the sense that she's able to predict the future. The other thing I should say on this is my dad's family, all the women are convinced that they're witches. Um, I've had very long conversations with various family members who are absolutely convinced that they have these powers also. So I think it's a Berber Jewish thing. Oh, wow. What is this tradition of, of sorcerers or, or magicians? Can you tell me a bit more? I can't tell you if this is just my family. In fact, this is actually quite funny, but I, I'm one of five children. I'm the second of five, but the last to arrive really late. Um, until the last two arrived, my grandma claimed that she had predicted that my mother would have three children, um, that she'd had these dreams about diamonds and pearls. And then the last two arrives, and I've just noticed that she's like, yes, this is exactly how I predicted. I'm like, no, I distinctly remember that for years you predicted there would be three. So you've changed your tune. But yeah, I think there's a... Um, a little bit of a sense of that like I think growing up as well you know until a certain age I thought I might have these powers also but then again I also thought I had the same powers as 
you know Matilda at a certain point and thought I could levitate objects so um but but my French side they do they do believe um in these superstitions yeah I understand that yeah there's a, there's a huge tradition of superstition of, of the evil eye and and lots of yeah things that we can predict sometimes a different way of thinking. I wanted to know what was the challenge in translating this text? So it is a classical French text with a certain number of syllables in a line and rhymes. I did debate, not for too long, but I did debate whether I should stick to that. I decided against it. I think the challenge with translation is always, you know, the battle between literal faithfulness to the text and the spiritual faithfulness to the text. There are things that I think I might want to revisit because it's, it is quite Shakespearean in that way. It's quite poetic. And I think it'll be a case of maybe reading it with actors to work out whether um, there should be any kind of fine tweaking, whether, whether actually doing it today means that um, it should whether we should stick loyally to how it's been written in the 1930s or whether there's some updating to do. I think that is also the question of translation is like, what does it mean now? Is there anything that we can change or should be changing? So, I mean, I, I studied um, French language and literature and I had to do a lot of translating and I, I do believe that it's influenced me more than anything else as a writer because the precision that you have to have with translation is intense and it really teaches you to be very careful about every single word that you're putting on the page. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah, I guess it also makes you aware of different traditions of, like you say, Racine or other uh, writers. And can you remember when you heard about Bert Benichou Abulker, like the first time? So I did have a, a dive into Algerian writers, you know, pretty recently as in you know I, I think it was your competition so kudos to you is that it forced me to think about um when I'm thinking about diverse Jewish voices I don't want to do something that people already know um I wanted to find somebody that I didn't know about um and and it's that challenge you know this is going to be complicated historically there are things in here I'm going to have to research and really think carefully about and that's what's appealing. So yeah, so I think it's, you know, it's thanks to you. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think she's known at all in France. Um, her son is well known for his part in the resistance. But my understanding is that they, they did all of that as a family. And that resistance happened in Algeria. So were the Nazis coming there at the time? Yes. So I've seen a play about this recently although it didn't seem very historically accurate, if I may say so. Um, it was a comedy, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied Tunisia, very funny, but I don't think it was as bad, obviously, as what was going on in Europe, but I don't know much about it, is the honest truth. Yeah, to be part of that resistance must have been very important as well at the time. I think my understanding is really that in Algeria, the whole French citizenship versus uh, independence was maybe a more bloody uh, war, effectively, really. <laughs> like, uh, I could be wrong in terms of numbers, but, you know, I know that, um, I think it's my uh, 
grandfather's parents or it's either my grandfather's father or my grandfather's grandfather you know one of them was murdered or, or shot to death for um over kind of french citizenship um not over um not during the holocaust so i don't know how uh, much of an impact might have been different between Tunisia and Algeria as well right yes so I think also yeah there's differences between the different countries out there so you're a filmmaker what kind of work do you make what what are your concerns like I saw you made a um, love is a hand grenade can you tell me about that and about your practice so love is a hand grenade was uh, kind of an amalgamation, a sort of melting point of different life experiences that um, that ended up as love as a hand grenade. Uh, I'd got to know someone um, who was uh, bipolar, um, and they came, they flew out to see me uh, during a manic episode, and I could not have anticipated how much of a sort of emotional roller coaster <laughs> that experience would be, and I I was just very interested in looking at sort of very intense female friendships where it kind of feels um, like an infatuation. I think what's been quite interesting with Love is a Hand Grenade is it's, I've had quite a lot of people actually get in touch over it because I think it's an experience that lots of women experience, uh, whether or not they identify as queer, which is quite interesting. I've had lots of queer filmmakers get in touch, but it also seems to have triggered something <laughs> in a lot of people that consider themselves straight. I'm very drawn to projects that are, that have a journalistic uh, purpose, like there is nothing that sets me off more than the fact that I couldn't find um, this play. There was another Algerian writer I was looking at, but she was just a little bit too much in the public domain. Um, so, you know, I have to find the one that people don't know. I think a lot of my interest of stories is that you want to bring something to a mainstream audience that they just don't know that they're interested to hear about yet. Um, I see like a henna is something like that. I think love is a hand grenade is you're seeing more and more stories about female friendships, although some of them I feel are quite artificially, you know, it'll get to the end and they'll, they'll choose friendship over love or something, but it, it can be quite forced. Um, and I think what I was quite interested in here was you see so many stories of friends where they're cracking kind of homophobic jokes or there's a almost what if there's a sexual tension to that friendship. There are so many books that we read, you know, get Great Gatsby, uh, The Secret History. There are so many almost between friends. And I think what I was interested in is like, why on earth are there, are there these always almost? Why don't we just push the boat out, see what would happen? And I kind of approached it in the way that I hoped is very like authentic um, and and unbelievable do you think it's important to make jewish centered work so yes i hadn't made any jewish centered work until the pandemic and i believe that what's happened for all minority groups during this period is um there's been so much racism online uh there's been quite you know like i would just say horrific uh not even online, you know, pretty abusive um, instances around the world and violence that um, that I feel like it's made all um, minorities feel like 
they need to embrace their identity maybe a little bit more than they had. So what I've observed is that I know plenty of people who would say that they're not Jewish. They don't identify as Jewish, they're atheists, there's nothing in their life that is Jewish. And suddenly during the pandemic, they're telling their first Jewish story. And I guess it's also been, you know, I'm not, I've never been someone that's, you know, disowns my Jewish identity, but I have felt the need to broaden people's idea of what being Jewish means. Um, So none of my films, I think, are, you know, what people would think of as obviously Jewish. Like a henna is obviously a story people don't know. I'm doing a story, a film about Raoul Wallenberg, who saved an estimated 100,000 Jews during the Holocaust. People don't know really about him, despite the fact he saved a lot more people than Schindler. Um, and, um, And so I'm kind of just trying to shine a light on these different stories. Where does Jewish existence meets joy for you? I think that's a really interesting question because obviously we talk about black joy. We don't really talk about Jewish joy. We can talk about Jewish misery, but not not really Jewish joy. Um, you know, I feel like not yet. Not not yet. Um, I I don't think there's Jewish pride in that way um, at this point in time. I think. And you do still see this of other minority groups, but even the word Jew, you know, has negative uh, connotations. Oh, you're such a Jew. Like that's not used in a positive way. It should be, <laughs> but it's it's not. I think there's a real hesitance within the Jewish community to, to identify themselves as, you know, as a, as a sort of community that way, um, because there's a hesitation around the fact that, you know, we can blend generally, like, right? Like we are white passing. There's a sense of like, we can always complain, but um, that in terms of the celebration, that it's it's kind of always been more private. You know, Judaism is not um, a religion that encourages uh, non-Jews to convert. It's very insular that way. So Jewish joy is something that you experience with your family over Friday night dinner, but it's absolutely not something that you broadcast to non-Jews. And I, I don't know in terms of joy, actually don't know what that would mean within the Jewish community. I think it would probably revolve around food. What what do you think? Yeah, definitely food, community sometimes when when you can feel like you belong uh, in a community, which is not always the case for queer people or for other people in certain communities. Yeah, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Like, where, where is it? The creativity, I think, of, of Jewish people. For, I think that's true. I think that's true. For having moved around so much and, and having collected so much as well. I think that's pride, but I'm not sure that that's joy. So I would say yes. I think there's huge pride in the fact that it's, you can't, can't argue the fact that Jews have had to start over so many times and you know, within a generation or two, they've had to not only rebuild their lives, but they do contribute to society. I think what's quite interesting, I guess, is the fact that the the Judaism tends to be private, but as a people, you know, besides like maybe the more super religious factions, we are prominent in society. Like we do want to contribute to society. We see our roles in society as being very important, you know, in terms of charity, the idea is that you you help your community first. 
you know, Jew Jewish culture isn't that you actually saved the coral in the reef or something. It's that you help the people nearby, the people in your community. So I think there is a huge pride in the fact that, you know, um, there's all of these contributions to art, science and maths and advancements that way. And I, I, I do believe that so maybe it is in fact the history of having to restart and that kind of in some ways leads to like that creativity. I think you often see that, that communities that are being persecuted are, pro are producing great art. It's just yeah. something that I feel. Considering everything we discussed, what do you hope for the future of theatre, of, of Jewish identity and existence, and of, of both of them together? So I really like your mission because I feel that with Jewish representation in uh, film and art, that there's a kind of binary of like, what is a good Jew? And what is a, let's say, like a bad Jew, <laughs> um, you know, and, and for instance, you see a lot of, let's say, like, you know, good Jews are, are the sort of the, the victim narrative, say, uh, like Holocaust stories in a certain kind of way. And there's no nuance or interest in expanding these stories into things that are like cross-cultural, like the Algerian history is complicated. I was a bit worried about sending this story because you know, it's it's dealing with an Arab invasion, but historically that's what happened. And we have to be able to have conversations around it. You can't just kind of blanketly um, not want to talk about something that isn't convenient or change, you know, we're in a, in a world of sort of fake news, like kind of change the context to suit the narrative that you want. And I think that, you know, say with something like uh, Jewish environmentalists uh, or climate activists that these things are more subtle and more complicated and I think that we just need to be open to you know broadening like you know queer Jewish stories you know there's there was that uh, club night uh, but mitzvah uh, that my mother found on Facebook and RSCP attending to um, and I'm like oh my god I have to take my mother to this club night <laughs> once it's back on she will be there on the first night um so you know what it what does it mean to be Jewish and queer it's a sort of sub story of the climate activists for instance there was a huge conversation around um who's the protagonist but the reality is that you know a space like that was offering a community that is embracing of a difference in a sense that you know and that's what but mitzvah is it's about realigning or finding a way to bring the queer community and the Jewish community back together um and you know the same it's the same with Sadeh this Jewish farm and there's a you know subtlety and you know what you might call intersectionality with these stories that I think are important to explore without judgment um, without um, like a moral imperative. Amazing. There's definitely joy in dancing in a circle to Jewish music. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or throwing yourself in there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been amazing. Thank you for having me. Global Jewish Voices is hosted by me, Victor Esses, edited by Tony Olani Pekan, and produced by the Global Voices Theatre team. This podcast series is supported by Arts Council England. 
To hear more about the work of Global Voices Theatre, visit globalvoicestheatre.com or follow them on Twitter for news and updates on at Global Voices TH or Global Voices Theatre on Facebook. To find out more about my work, visit victorss.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram on at victorss.com.